Well, good morning again, beloved. How's everybody? All right, all right. Half of y'all are here. It's good to see you. Good to see you this morning. Let me add my word of welcome uh, to those who are visiting with us this morning. We're so glad that you're here and uh, you really encourage us with your presence. Your, your presence here ministers to us and we pray that as we sing praises to God and now turn to God's word that the Lord himself would minister to you uh, and encourage you. And let me renew Peter's invitation uh, to join us afterwards, grab some coffee and uh, things that that sort, and let us get to know you by, by name, shake your hand, greet you face to face. We'd like nothing more than that, than to, in that way, meet you heart to heart. Well, uh, we are in the middle, if you're visiting with us, we are in the middle of a series through the early chapters of Isaiah. And uh, there's some lovely folks in the aisle who have Bibles. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand and we'll be glad to supply you one. Anyone need a, a Bible this morning? Just raise your hands, keep it high. There's a darling young lady here in the middle. Uh, that needs one. And we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. So you can turn there with us, book of Isaiah. If you're new to the Bible, when you hear me say chapter 7, that's the big number on the page. And uh, along the way, I'll be referring to verse numbers. Those are the small numbers on the page. So we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7, listening to God speak to us through his word, which is the clearest way that God speaks to his people uh, today is through his word. So with that in mind, let me offer a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, when we fear our faith will fail, we rejoice in the promise that Christ will hold us fast. And Lord, we read in your word that when we are faithless, you are still faithful because you cannot deny yourself. You will not deny yourself. You will not break the promises of your word. And so, Lord, with that assurance, our hearts grab again onto the promises of your word. That if any believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, their sins will be forgiven just as you promise. They will be reconciled to you just as you promise. They will have eternal life with you just as you promise and will live forever in your love just as you promise. So help us, O Lord, now to stand firm in faith, believing your promises, looking forward to their fulfillment, rejoicing in your love. Speak to us by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the the funny thing about the Christian life is you very often have to live it standing between things. The Christian life is a tweener life. We're not what we used to be, as the cliche goes, but we're not yet what we're going to be. The old life of sin has been atoned for, and we have been reconciled to Christ if we are Christians, and yet the life we really long for, the life which is to come, the life of glory, the life of heaven, well, that's not yet here. We're standing betwixt and between. Well, that's not just true theologically. It's also true in a very practical way. We we stand between experiences. It's been said that you're either in a trial or coming out of a trial or on your way into a trial. I find that particularly pessimistic, but it's true. We're we're between experiences, high points and and low points, and and we're even between calendar years. So I was so glad when 2016 was over, then 2017 happened, and I'm so looking forward to 2018, right? And that's really my introduction, is God's people live as an in-between people. In our text in Isaiah chapter 7, we find Judah living between God's promises and some really threatening experiences. As you'll see, they're surrounded by enemies who've come to conquer the southern kingdom. They're led by an unrighteous king. And yet God has made these exceedingly great promises, not only before to Israel, but in this very chapter. And they're standing between what God has promised 
and what's actually happening in their lives. And and here's the main point of Isaiah chapter 7. Maybe if you only get this, it'll serve you this week. Whatever happens in life, do not take your eyes of faith off of God. Whatever happens in life, don't take your eyes off God and don't stop trusting Him. Trust Him on the mountaintop when things are good. Trust Him in the valley when things are hard. Come what may, look to God. And we're going to unpack this in Isaiah chapter 7 in sort of four sections. We're going to divide the chapter into four parts. And for each part, here's, here's the outline. Here's the point I want to make from each part. Number one, we're going to see that the king is shook. The king is shook. Isaiah 7, verses 1 and 2. And number two, God is cool. God is cool. Isaiah 7, verses 3 to 9. Then we get this promise, number 3, the sun is coming. The sun is coming, verses 10 to 17. Then finally, the faithless perish. The faithless perish, verses 18 to 25. Follow along with me as we read Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with the razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet. And it and it will sweep away the beard also. 
In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. My Lord had a blessing to read him his word. Whatever happens in life, beloved, do not take your eyes of faith off God. Notice as we start in the context the king of Judah is shook. Isaiah 7 jumps ahead in history from Isaiah chapter 6. You remember in Isaiah 6 verse 1, that chapter began with in the year that King Uzziah died. Places us at about 739 BC. But Isaiah 1 begins this way, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah. So we're jumping forward two kings now. According to 2 Chronicles 27, 1 and 2, uh, Jotham came to power when he was 25 years old, when Uzziah had died. Jotham reigned in Judah for 16 years. The 2 Chronicles 27, 1 and 2 says that Jotham did what was right in God's sight. However, it goes on to say in verse 3 that the rest of the country followed corrupt practices. So Jotham was a good king with a bad people. Isaiah 1 tells us is now during the time of his son, King Ahaz. And Ahaz, like his father, became king when he was young as well. Uh, 2 Chronicles 28, 1 and 2 says that he was 20 years old when he came to be king. Says also like his father that he reigned for 16 years in Judah. But not like his father. This man, Ahaz, did not worship God faithfully. And in fact, was the opposite of his father. So if you want to keep your finger in Isaiah, turn to 2 Chronicles 28. So you're turning back to the left in the Old Testament there, book of history. 2 Chronicles 28, this is what we read about Ahaz in verses 1 to 4. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, which was given over to idolatry. He even made metal images of the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and notice this, and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. That's the king on the throne in, in Judah in Isaiah 7. Now Isaiah 1 tells us this, that two other kings, Rezin of Syria and Pekah of the northern kingdom of Israel, decide to surround and attack Jerusalem. Syria has long been an enemy of Israel and now, uh, uh, excuse me, of Israel and Judah, and now the northern kingdom themselves, their brothers, have come against them. There's a kind of civil war that's broken out here. Verse 1 says of Isaiah, they came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. In verse 2, you see there, Ahaz and his people hear the news. Syria is in league with Ephraim. And Ephraim is one of the tribes of Israel. It's sometimes used to refer to the, the whole of the nation. So Syria is in league with, with our brethren, Israel, and they have come up against us. And the king, the text says, is shook, y'all. Fear has his knees knocking. Now think about that image there in verse 2 of Isaiah. We've all seen the, the wind blow strong and limbs and leaves flutter in the wind. That's what's happening with his heart. Brush up. He's afraid. And we learn a lesson from this. We should, we should stop to make a couple of comments about fear. You see, fear like all other emotions, is actually a good gift from God when it's used properly. It's by fear that the Lord 
alerts us to danger. It's by fear that he warns us off of bad paths, off of evil paths. But the wrong kind of fear or too much fear is not a good thing. Too much fear paralyzes us, and the wrong kind of fear, the rear of the fear of the wrong kinds of things, actually takes our eyes off of God. And that way, fear can be the enemy of faith, beloved. And so we read in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You see the contrast? You go about fearing man rather than God, and you're going to be walking into all kinds of snares, of of traps and pitfalls. But the man who fears the Lord is safe no matter what's happening. Or Job chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. The Bible says there, such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is is severed. It's cut through. And in this image, his trust is a spider's web. Imagine trying to hang all of your hopes of safety and well-being on the strength of a spider's web. That's what it's like to forget God in our fear. That's what it's like to fear man rather than God. And that's, that's Ahaz. He, he worships idols and has forgotten God. So, so now he panics in the grip of fear. And it becomes a cautionary tale for us. We do not want to allow fear to make us forget God. And we have to be aware of when we're operating in fear. That's not always easy to tell. Because not all fear looks like terror and knees knocking. Our fear comes to us in in many kinds of ways. Sometimes fear shows up as anger. Often an angry person is just a scared person. Sometimes fear shows up as anxiety. The wringing of hands and, and worrying. Sometimes fear shows up as avoidance. We try to dodge those things that we know we need to confront and to face. Fear shows up as indecisiveness, never able to kind of pull the trigger and make a decision and commit yourself. Fear can even lead to depression, sort of the world closing in on us in that way. People-pleasing, it's often fear, fear of man. And fear might show itself in stress and other forms of poor health. So if we have something happening in our lives and we can't We can't keep our focus on God and his promises. We might do well to ask ourselves if we're afraid. And what are we afraid of? And how is that fear showing itself in our lives? So think about yourself personally for a moment. What does fear look like for you? Are you aware of when you're feeling shook? something. And do you and I, do we turn our thoughts and our trust back to God where we're in the grip of fear? Ahaz is a king, a leader here struggling with fear. But notice the text says not just Ahaz when he heard the news, but his, his people as well. So here we have God's covenant people as a people afraid because enemies have come up around Jerusalem. It's possible for God's entire people to take their eyes off God and be shook by their circumstances. So not only should we ask ourselves these questions personally, but we should ask these questions of ourselves corporately as as an entire church. We're, We're nearing the end of the year and it's that time when we reflect on the year that's passed and we look forward to the year that's coming. As I worked on this passage, I asked myself if, if, if ARC was shook by anything. Beloved, it's been a difficult year in many ways. The election of 2016 shook the entire country, shook the church at large, and it shook us. There were some of us struggling deeply and profoundly in the aftermath of the election. And beloved, the truth is it didn't matter who was elected, some of us were going to be struggling. We were shook. 
We began the year, or, or a quarter ways into the year, we lost a faithful elder and his family in the aftermath of the election. Circumstances around that could shake some of us, shake our trust, shake our confidence. We had our first case of church discipline this year. Some of us had never been in churches that practiced discipline, and some of us had been in churches that have practiced discipline, but we still had questions and, and grief over the situation. I think it was hard on us. We've had a number of people leave over the course of 2017 for, for various reasons. I mean, the Lord took faithful saints like Joseph and Erica Williams and moved him to their next chapter in Charlottesville. A, a couple of others have chosen um, graciously to, to worship at other churches. In a small church plant, every leaving can create a shaking. As we, as we shared our last members meeting this year, every one of the elders' families have faced what is perhaps one of the most significant trials that they have faced this year. It's been a hard year. So when I thought about these things, I, I wondered to myself, and I'll give you the question, are we shook in any way? Are we in danger of giving in to fear and are we tempted to take our eyes off of God? If so, I want us to see that while Ahaz was shook, God was cool. Uh, look with me in verses 3 to 9. God, God doesn't panic because we panic. <laughs> we, we may be surrounded by enemies and out of control, but God is never surrounded by enemies that threaten him. And he's never out of control. Here's why. Five reasons why. Number one, God knows exactly where we are. God is cool because he knows where we are when trouble comes. In verse 3, notice, God tells Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. Notice, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, that's a very specific location, isn't it? God knows exactly where Ahaz is. It's because he's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He, he doesn't lose sight of us. And so he says to the prophet, here's where you find that rascal. Go out there and meet him. Now, where Ahaz is has military significance. It's the water supply. He's surrounded by enemies, and he's worried about the water supply. But it also has spiritual significance, again, because God sees him. God knows where he is. He is not lost to God. And, beloved, when we face trouble, we're not lost to God either. God is cool because he knows exactly where every piece on the chessboard is. But notice, secondly, God is cool because he has a remnant. We see that also in verse 3, when God instructs Isaiah to take his son, I can't pronounce it, Shear Jashub, let's go with that, to meet Ahaz, it's a message in a name. Shear Jashub means the remnant shall return. In other words, those who survived being captured in this war and survived Syria and, and, and Ephraim and, and later Assyria, well, God's got a people that he's not going to forsake. God's got a people that he's going to bring back into the land who will enjoy his covenant promises with him. Don't think that God is ever without a ram in the bush. And don't think that God is ever in danger of not having a people for himself. Surround God's people all you want. Come against them all you like. But this God, he keeps his people. He's cool because no one will pluck his people from his hand. But notice the third reason. God is cool because basically he ain't scared. He ain't scared. That's what we see in verse 4. And say to him, Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these, notice, two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger. And I think, I think Isaiah put that in air quotes, the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. As far as God's concerned, Reza and Pekah are two smoldering stumps of firebrands. They're, they're little sticks used to kindle a fire, but they're smoldering, which means they're, they're going out. And they're stumps. They're not trees. They're not mighty oaks. They're already cut down as far as God is concerned. Ain't nothing to them in God's sight. God ain't scared. He's not shaken by anything that shakes us. I mean, the Lord looks at 
Topeka, and he looks at resin, and he's like, man, please. It ain't nobody but resin and Rimaliah's boy. Notice he don't even name him anymore in the rest of the chapter. God is like, that's Rimaliah's boy. He's like, boy, I know your daddy. Coming here with all that. We have to read verse 4, thinking about Psalm 2. Remember what's said there? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth <laughs> set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And verse 4 says this, he, God, who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God up there cracking jokes. He's mocking them. He's laughing at them. There is no threat to God. And that's why God is cool. He ain't scared. He's got a remnant. He knows precisely where we are. And number four, God is in control. It's cool because he's in control. That's the point of verses five and nine. Specifically, because Syria and Ephraim, notice, devised evil against Judah. For that very reason, God says, see it there? Excuse me, in, in, verse, um, in verse seven, God says, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. And with that, that little plan is over. Listen, it doesn't matter how many enemies we have, how many armies surround us, what kinds of threats they make. If God is your God, then they cannot touch you unless he says so. Not even Satan wanting to afflict Job could do anything in Job's life without first having God's permission. There are no enemies who can really attack and threaten God's people without the providential allowance of God. That's why verse 1 says they came up to Jerusalem to attack it. But you notice that? But they were not yet able to mount an attack. They wanted to. They planned to. But they couldn't. Because their armies weren't in control, God was. No one ever takes God off the throne. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, 21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Beloved, take note. God's control of man's plans extends even over our enemies. Let them plan what they will. It's the purposes of God that will stand. Secular nations like Syria can plan what they want, but God has veto power. Backsliding and backbiting professing Christians like Ephraim can plan what they want, but God can stop it and close it up whenever he chooses. Notice verses 8 and 9. God says there, within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. God promises to smash them to nothing. See, God is cool because he knows precisely where we are. He has a remnant. He isn't scared. He's in full control. And number five, well, let's stop there. I thought there was five. Those four reasons. <laughs> the end of verse 9 teaches us how we should apply all of this to our lives. Isaiah says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. The you there is plural. So this applies not only to Ahaz, but to all of Judah. It applies really to all of God's people here today as well. Beloved, there's no way to be firm to be solid, to be rooted, to be stable, to be strong. There's no way to be firm in life if we are not first firm in faith. A person without faith is a person without fortitude. If we don't believe in God, then we will fall for anything. A person who won't stand with God is a person who won't stand for God. And a person who does not trust God is really a person in the end not to be trusted. They are not firm or solid or steadfast because they lack faith. 
That's why Ahaz was shook. He didn't have faith in God. I want to show you what happened as a result. So keep your finger in Isaiah 7. Turn again back with me to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 28. We'll start reading in verse 5. Because there the rest of the story of Ahaz is recorded for us. And it is a, a terrifying cautionary tale. It is positively put an exhortation for us, a negative example teaching us to trust God no matter what. Second Chronicles 28 verse 5. Therefore the Lord his God, so he's talking about all of uh, Ahaz's idolatry in verses 1 to 5, 1 to 4. And in the therefore, the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. For Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day. All of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zichri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Messiah, the king's son, and Azrakam, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. Then verse 8, the men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. See, because he has, has no faith, it really goes from bad to worse. Skip down with me to verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. Notice what he does. Doesn't turn to God. He turns to Assyria. For the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines had made raids on the cities in the Shephelah and the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ijalon, Gederoth, Soko with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages. Notice, and they settled there. So they've been overrun and overtaken. Verse 19, for the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath, Pileser, king of Assyria, the one that now in verse 16, Ahaz is asked help from. King of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. Verse 22, in the time of his distress, notice, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. This same king Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Because he had no faith, he was not firm at all. He went from bad to worse. He turned to one, from one threat to an even bigger threat looking for help. And that first threat not only crushed him, but the even bigger threat would come and, thrust, and, and, and crush him. And instead of turning to God, he turns to the false gods of the people who conquered him. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If we do not turn to God, in our troubles, we will not be safe at all. We should never forget or underestimate the sovereign goodness of God when we find ourselves scared of things. Think back to the things that might have shaken ARC this year. The election is over, beloved. Nearly a year has passed, and almost all the craziness that we thought could happen has been happening. I say almost because you never know. I mean, tomorrow's a new day. And, but by God's grace, look around. We're still here. We're still worshiping Christ. We're still serving together. We're still continuing in our mission. And if God is really being gracious to us, we're learning from the things that have been shaking us and growing stronger together 
rather than weaker apart. We have lost a dear elder in his family, but the Lord is still our shepherd, and we shall not want. And right now, we are praying to receive and to affirm, if it's God's will, another faithful brother to serve us as an elder in Dennis, Washington. Praise God. We still mourn that we ever had to practice church discipline. It's not something churches do joyfully and gladly, but with broken hearts. But over those long several months, that brother has kept in touch with us as pastors, keeping us up to date with his status. And just this past week, he wrote to us as elders, and this is part of what he said. He's been attending churches. Um, he's, he's since moved to another state and trying to come back to the area. He's been attending churches there. And this is part of what he wrote. I want to thank ARC, that's you, beloved, for placing me under church discipline and for your and others' prayers in the church for me at this time. By God's grace, I have not gone back to my sin. God, praise God. Go ahead. And I attribute that to the steps ARC took on my behalf and your prayers. We all know the scene in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul instructs the church to put a member out of their, out of their fellowship, to hand them over to Satan that they may not sin. Lesser known is the passage in 2 Corinthians, I think, chapter 2, where it appears the man is repentant, and Paul says, renew your love for him. So he's written, he's wanting to know how he might come and be reconciled to this church body. Beloved, a thing that scares us, like discipline, in God's hands by his grace, produces repentance and holiness and reconciliation. God is good. And among those who are no longer with us in worship, the vast majority of them, beloved, left to grow the gospel in helping to plant Mercy of Christ Fellowship Church in Northeast D.C. See, beloved, if we get smaller, but the gospel grows, that's a win for Team Jesus. That's a win for Team Jesus, beloved. When we're shook, God is not. The Lord is in control, and he even makes the things that scare us serve his good purposes in the world. So we, beloved, must be firm in faith, which means, as, as, as Isaiah says to uh, Ahaz up in verse 4, we should at least take note of these four things and apply them to our lives. Number one, when we are troubled, we should be careful. Don't be rash. Don't run out on your own. Don't try to do things in your own wisdom and your own strength. Slow down and be careful. Number two, notice, we should be quiet. Quiet your mouth. Quiet your mind. Quiet your heart. And here's the funny thing about quiet, beloved. You know, some people are made nervous by quiet. We've got to be comfortable with the silences that God gives us in the faith. He said, be quiet. Don't start running your mouth. Don't let your mind run. Don't let your heart run. Disquiet it. Bring it all under obedience to Christ. Notice what he says next. Do not fear. Say no to your fear. I'm not giving in to you. I'm not following you. I'm not obeying you. I'm shutting out your whispers. Why? Number four. Notice what he says there. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps. And, and the positive way of putting that put your faith in God. That's what we're to do when we're troubled and surrounded by trouble. That's how we firm up our faith and turn back to the God who loves us. We look to God and not to man. We believe God is in control no matter what happens. We trust God for deliverance rather than trusting ourselves. And we hold fast to God's promises in his word. That's part of why they're there. It's to give us an anchor in the storm. Which brings us to the third thing we want to see in this text in verses 10 to 17. The sun is coming. It seems to me as we read Isaiah 7 that God really wants to encourage Ahaz. And he does so here by calling Ahaz to not only be firm in faith, but now notice the, the grace and the generosity of God toward people who are fearful, even people like Ahaz who doesn't worship him. Notice the generosity in verse 11. He invites Ahaz to ask for a sign. Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deepest Sheol, 
Let it go down to the pit or let it be as high as heaven. So God is saying, ask anything you want of me for a sign so that I can assure you in the faith. And that reveals a lot of patience and tenderness from God, doesn't it? That's how God deals with his people who are, who are shook. He doesn't crush us because we are afraid. A bruised reed he will not crush. A, a smoking candle he will not quench out. He's merciful and, and kind, even to the Ahazes of the world. He's saying, let me prove to you that you can trust me. Ask me for a sign, anything you wish. And that's a gracious God. That's what he's like. But look at Ahaz. Ahaz act all afflicted in verse 12. He said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now that sounds all righteous and holy, doesn't it? But keep in mind what we learned from Ahaz in 2 Chronicles 28. Uh, he builds an, an altar to idols. He cuts up the materials used to worship God, to give to other kings, and to build those altars to idols. He sacrifices his own children to idols. And now he like, I don't want to put God to the test. It's stunning, isn't it? It's almost too much to believe until you realize that people have a stubborn, stubborn tendency to live sinful lives while claiming to honor God. I mean, sinners like to tell themselves they're good people who believe vaguely in a God, but who also like to enjoy their sin. I mean, some sinners like to talk a good game, but their lives deny it. And that's why Isaiah says in verse 13, with a little bit of attitude, I think, Hear then, O house of David. It's referring to him as king and pointing to the fact that he's a descendant on David's throne. That's important in a moment. He says, here then, O house of David, all right then, is it too little for you to weary men that you're going to get on God's nerve also? Notice how he puts it, my God, it ain't even your God no more. You, you, done, you done got on my nerves so bad that, that you done, your, your nonsense done reached heaven. <coughs> himself to be even more gracious still. He gives Ahaz and Israel and the whole world a sign anyway. See there in verses 14 to 17. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah since the civil war. And what is that he'll bring? The king of Assyria. The sign is a prophecy with three parts. Verse 14 tells us of a virgin bearing a son named Emmanuel. Second, it tells us that there's a son who will still be a young boy when Syria and Israel are deserted. Verse 16. And third, the prophecy predicts the Assyrian invasion of Judah in verse 17, which will be worse than the civil war that originally split the two nations. The biblical prophecy can have multiple fulfillments. There will be a fulfillment in the prophet's own day. And often there's a fulfillment in the life and the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then sometimes there's a fulfillment in the very end of time as well. Think of it as standing off from a mountain range and seeing sort of three peaks in that mountain range. And that's what prophecy is often like. And this prophecy has a fulfillment in Isaiah's day, but also a fulfillment in Jesus' day as well. First, there's the promise of a son. Notice, we know this promise applies to Isaiah's day because of verses 15 and 16. Before the son is old enough to choose between good and evil, so while he's a, a boy, basically, Syria and Ephraim will be deserted. That, that means in just a few years from this prophecy, those two nations will be defeated. We know the prophecy, uh, again, against Judah happens in Isaiah's day because of verse 17, which predicts the, the coming of Assyria, which happened in, in, in Ahaz's lifetime. But more wonderful, 
is the fulfillment that comes with Jesus. The virgin that conceives a son is Mary. It's exactly what we celebrate in this time of year as we look forward to Christmas, the birth of the Son of God. Jesus' incarnation and his birth into the world fulfills all the promises of a special son that run throughout the Bible. It begins in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God promises to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman, interesting phrase, isn't it? Seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. It continues with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, where he promises to Abraham that his offspring, singular, his child, will inherit the land that God has promised to him. And it continues on down to David, when God promises to David that a son of David will sit on David's throne and reign forever in an everlasting kingdom. And all of those sort of promises of a special son, they come together in that one unique son of God, Jesus Christ, when he's born into the world. He's the one who crushes Satan's head, the serpent's head on the cross. His heel is bruised, he's wounded, he's beaten, he's afflicted, but he defeats our adversary, Satan, and he defeats the grave and he defeats hell and sin. And he is the one who will bring us into the land, not the land of Israel over in the Middle East, but that new kingdom which God has promised to all those who believe in him. And in that land and right now, he is that king who sits on David's throne, who rules in righteousness both now and forevermore, whose kingdom will not end. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the chosen son. And it's in this son that God fulfills all his promises to his people. When Christ comes into the world, he comes for us. He lives among us. He dies in our place on the cross. That's where God punishes him for our sins. He takes our place and he suffers in our place. And then he's raised three days later from the grave. And that's where God says to the whole world, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased with his sacrifice. He doesn't need to do anything more to satisfy my anger toward you. And now all people everywhere are called to repent of their sin, confessing it to God, and to become firm in faith by believing in Jesus and following him as their Lord and Savior. And all the promises of God, of forgiveness, of righteousness, of cleanness before God, of eternal life, and knowing his love, becomes ours through faith in Jesus. Indeed, when we look at Isaiah 7, 14, and we see what this baby is to be named, Emmanuel, we get an even more stunning promise from God. Emmanuel means God with us. And that's who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh who's come into the world to tabernacle among us. But not just when he came into the world in his flesh, but when he comes into our lives through faith. We turn to Christ in faith, and it's Emmanuel, Jesus, coming into our hearts to live by his Spirit, forever to be with us, never to forsake us. This is what Jesus himself promised in John 14, 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, meaning Jesus and the father, will come to him and make our home with him. Love, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. That's God's promise to you. If you would love his son, become firm in faith by obeying his word. And God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, three in one, will come and make their home with you. You'll never be orphaned. You'll never be homeless. You'll never be without family when God is your Father. Believe on Jesus. Trust in him. He's come for you. The question is, will you believe in him? The king is shook. 
but God is cool. The Son has come. Notice, notice the last thing in verses 18 to 25. But the faithless perish. Again, that's the point of verses 18 to 25. Ahaz appears, appeals to Syria for help. And as a result, as we've already said, Assyria comes against Judah when they are weak and Assyria defeats them. And it'll happen in just a little bit of time from when Ahaz sends message to them. Because they were faithless, they perish in God's judgment. Verses 18 and 19. See, they have this plague of flies and bees. It reminds you of the plague of, of Egypt, doesn't it? The flies and bees settle all over the land of Judah, and that represents Assyria taking completely over. Verse 20, there'll be shame throughout the land. In God's hands, Assyria will become like a razor. And God will use that razor to shave all the hair off the body of the people. From, from the head and their beards to the, the, the sort of public parts to the private parts of their body, the, the feet. Now, I don't know how many of you got hair on your feet, but that, from head to toe, God is going to shave them, which in that culture is a symbol of shame. They will be put to great shame as a people for having rejected their God. Verse 21 and 22 tell us the people will be left in poverty. Curds and honey is the diet of the poor in the Bible. And then verse 23, the land will be ruined. The agricultural areas that, that once produced vines that produce a, a thousand shekels of silver will only produce thorns and briars in that day. It only produce trouble and pain. So even though God has promised them a son that will deliver those who remain, he also promises judgment against those who will not trust in him. Beloved, the point there is, particularly if you're not a Christian, or if you are a professing Christian, but you're not following Jesus, you're following and serving your sin. The point here, very clearly, is God is not mocked, and he is not playing. You cannot expect to reject him and live in his blessing and his favor. Sooner or later, he will call us all to account for how we have lived and how we have regarded him and his son. And if we are faithless, he will judge us most severely. This is even what the New Testament writers tell us. Consider 1 Peter 4, 17. Peter writes there, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So God's going to start with his people in his judgment. Then Peter says this, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? It's unimaginable, beloved. Or consider what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 10. Paul says there, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire... He will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believe. See what Paul is saying there. The world is divided between two kinds of people. Those who obey the gospel. Who when they hear from God in the preaching of the gospel that they are sinners who need to repent of their sin, put their faith in Jesus, and follow Jesus in the obedience of faith, they, they, are, they become one kind of people who obey the gospel, and for them the glory of God will be revealed in them. And there are those who refuse to obey the gospel, who refuse to repent, to confess their sin and turn away from it, and refuse to follow Jesus in the obedience that comes from faith. And for them, Paul says, the future holds God's righteous judgment. He says, 
They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Let that phrase hang together in your mind. Eternal destruction. We think of destruction as something that happens in a moment, but in God's judgment, it's this always forever experiencing of being destroyed in his judgment. And Paul says here, they will suffer that destruction, notice, away from the presence of the Lord. So to refuse the gospel is to regard Jesus as kind of the anti-Emmanuel. Rather than God with us, it's God away from us. And in that being away from God, there is no grace, there is no love, there is only wrath and righteous judgment. And God sits those two paths before us today. And he says, choose. Choose life or death. Blessing or cursing. Emmanuel or an eternity without God. Choose the gospel or choose to remain in your sin. Choose heaven or choose hell. Beloved, I plead with you this morning, if you're not a Christian, choose life and blessing and Jesus and heaven and love and live together with God forever. He is so gracious that all he requires is that you confess your sin and put your trust in him. Do that today and live forever. Because God is also not shook by your sin and shook by hell. It's his idea. It's a holy idea. And you may be thinking that your judgment in hell is a, so bad a thing that God might be upset by it, that he might be shook. He's not. You need to be shook, and you need to come to Jesus. Trust in him. Be forgiven and live forever. Let's pray together. Father, we remember what you what you go on to say in Psalm 2, after laughing at the nations who rage against you and mocking them in your holiness, you go on to end that psalm by saying, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, and you promise, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so as we close the sermon this morning and prepare to go out into the world to serve you, Lord, we pray this morning that you would receive our kisses, that you would receive, Lord, our affection, our love, our praise, our thanksgiving, because through your Son, you have rescued us from hell and from judgment. And in your Son, we have eternal life and an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken, where we will live with you forever. And we want to pray this morning, those of us who know Jesus, for those who don't. Grant them even now the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. And grant them even now to see the Savior in his beauty and to, to adore him and to love him and to kiss the Son in faith. To hold fast to him and live. To be made firm in faith so that nothing can shake them. Because they have Jesus and Jesus has them. Well, you've sent us into this community to bear witness to you, to bear witness to you in word, the word of the gospel. And we pray that you would make it fruitful in the lives of your people. We ask, Lord, don't harden people the way Ahaz hardened himself, but mercifully grant softened hearts and new faith and eternal life. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us not to, to grant or not to sort of give witness to your name by word only. God, keep us from a talkative faith. Grant, O oh Lord, that we would bear witness in deeds of love and mercy and justice. That we would have that pure religion, that undefiled religion in your sight, that visits the orphan and widows in their affliction.
that cares for the vulnerable in practical ways. And that by those ways, uh, introduces them to your love. Give us grace to live this way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.